So taking a permit set where the windows are all the same size, everything is the same size that can make up. It's just on a different lot. That way, we have the option to do bulk buying. So bulk buying is going to give us a couple different options. It's going to allow us to control our own supply chain a little bit better because we can actually bulk buy and hold materials in a warehouse, as well as obviously um, better pricing. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Carl Krauskopf, and today we're talking about ground-up development of townhouses. This is one of the strategies that Carl uses to invest in real estate, and we're digging into the full process here from getting it started to all the way to finishing up and selling it off or other strategies to exit a townhouse development. Really interesting stuff. We go through the whole process, the entire process, the way his company does it, and dig into a number of aspects within that process as well. And if you're considering investing in a development, no matter how your strategy of investing in it might be, it's good to know the process, right? It's good to know how it works, how a successful development looks. And that's what we're digging into today. A lot of great information in this one. You're going to learn so much. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically in apartment building and self-storage syndications. If you're interested in learning more and potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call with me. I will look forward to speaking with you then. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please do take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. If you haven't done so yet, don't forget to subscribe. Look us up on your favorite podcast app. Hit that subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is Carl Krauskopf, and today we're digging into ground-up development of townhouses. Really interesting stuff. Without any further ado, here we go. Carl, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Going to have a lot of great information for our listeners today. For those out there who don't know about you and your business, can you tell us about your background and what you invest in? Sure. So uh, my name is Carl Krauskopf. I live up in uh, Seattle, Washington. And uh, Aurora's investment group right now is uh, primarily focused on uh, two, I would say, two different uh, uh, products. One is the townhome and apartment development. So think of uh, ground up construction uh, where we have options to uh, buy, build and sell or buy, build and rent and hold long term on those, either the townhome or the apartments. And then the other would be the uh, kind of the traditional value add apartments. Um, on on the latter side, we're really focused on sunbelts, steady uh, steady appreciation, steady cash flow. On the former, we're we're really focused on uh, higher appreciation markets like the Northwest and some of the other um, some of the other markets that are really again focused on appreciation. Great, and you know. Just to, I want to continue on the conversation really that we were having before we were hit recording and really dig into townhome development, your experiences there, lessons learned, and you know, all of those kinds of things. So, 
kind of a high level, can you get us started and tell us about you know the types of deals that you do in townhome development? Sure. So really, again, a lot of the, our experiences up here in, in Seattle, where you know I'm sure most other markets have a lot of bureaucracy and timing in terms of getting entitlements, permitting, uh, and I would say the average up here for a very low ambitious, meaning you're not pushing envelopes, you're not getting variations in codes or zoning is about 12 months. So 12 months to get title entitlements, to get permits, and then you're looking at an additional 12 months plus to get the construction and getting onto whatever your next phase is, whether it's, uh, whether it's holding or selling. So right now we are hyper-focused, laser-focused, I would say, on buying straight from developers the already entitled and permit-ready projects. So that way we can bypass that phase. Obviously, we're going to be, be leaving a little bit on the table in terms of, you know, those developers obviously have to make some money on uh, their side of their side of the house. But it's it's reducing our exposure to market cycles, long market cycles, by being able to get in and get out onto our next strategy within typically again a, a ten between ten and fourteen months. Okay, great. So let's dig into that and how you find those developers and figure out who to work with and what your you know, screening process. Uh, I'm sure you have some kind of process there on the front end to figure out you know, what lots to buy, what to invest in, what, you know, where's a good opportunity. So at a high level, how do you get started in picking a developer, picking lots and, and all of that right on the front end? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of developers, you know, what we've got in Seattle is a couple different things that's that's helpful for identifying those developers. There's a website out there that shows from a, a user-friendly perspective where all of the permit approved and the in-permit process projects are in the Seattle area. Now, I know some of the other cities around it do not necessarily have that, which makes it a little bit more difficult. But in Seattle, what we do, we start off with make, making and building those relationships based on uh, that user interface, reach out, email, get to know them, and uh, start talking to them about, about their projects. Nine times out of the 10, our, our purchase price does not meet whatever their sale price is. Absolutely, right? They want more, we can't afford more. And so we, we part ways on that particular project. But in the one in 10 cases where it does work, we get it under contract. Do a little, do some additional due diligence, and either continue on and close, or uh, for whatever reason, we may have to back out. Now, you mentioned uh, something about due diligence earlier. Is you know, I think one of the things as we continue to evolve and grow as a company is continuing to move that due diligence upstream, so that way we're able to ask some of the the most pertinent questions to qualify these leads in advance of going under contract, so that way we're not we're not spending unnecessary time either on on our side, the developer side, or sometimes if there's a broker involved on their side as well. So we built out when we're continuing to build out that due diligence checklist. And it really aims at identifying long-term construction requirements, high cost construction requirements. Two of the biggest examples there are street improvement plans and any kind of utility uh, enhancements. So street, uh, street improvement plans are where we're extending uh, typically some kind of utility like a water main, a sewer, or even if it's just increasing the size of the road, doing curb cuts, that kind of stuff. And uh, the difficult part with that is uh, we're, we're working with every single municipality in the city. 
right? From your department of transportation to fire, to all of the utilities, to the so forth and so on. So really exposes us even more so into those long market cycles. So we try and really focus on projects that don't have that type of work. So that way, again, we can hit our business strategy of getting in, getting out, getting onto the to uh, strategy B in that 10 to 14 months. Okay. Okay. And you mentioned uh, you know, earlier on about when you're looking at these deals, say nine out of 10 don't end up panning out because, uh, hey, the developer uh, that wants more money for the lot than you are going to pay. And that's totally fine. Uh, for those types of deals, is that typically because are they, you know, unreasonable or are those lots going to maybe a more retail type of uh, person who's just going to build a house for themselves to live in it? Or what's the typical reason for the disconnect there in your experience? So uh, there's a couple of reasons. I would say uh, on the conservative side, you know, we, uh, when we bank and when we underwrite, our exit value, whether it's on the rental side or on the sales side, we don't bank or we don't underwrite appreciation into our sales and into our projects. Now that ends up, that does end up, uh, ends up leaving us this nine to 10 deals that don't actually pan out. But I feel again, in the stage that we're at as a company that I don't want to take on that risk. Because again, uh, sure, we've seen crazy spikes in appreciation over this last year. Sure, we could even underwrite a, a standard normal appreciation. But at the, for the time being, we continue to operate in looking at whatever our exit values are based on today's comparable uh, either sales or you know, when we're underwriting long-term holds, you know, we're still doing rescission, excuse me, um, cap rate regression analysis. So you know, we're adding on 15 basis points for every quarter that we're exposed to the market. So that way, again, we're underwriting with conservative metrics and on a conservative basis. So I think that typically that's, you know, that's why we've heard a lot of, well, what, what's your, what's your you know, estimated cost to sell or what's your rental, what's your rental base? And we go through that and it's usually a, a, a strong disconnect between what we're underwriting and what the developer is going to be underwriting. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. So now let's get back to the process. We kind of left it off or we kind of, maybe I diverted us a little bit. After you get a, a piece of property under contract, you start doing your due diligence. Let's get back on track there till we, you know, I want to end up basically with a finished property that you're looking to, uh, you know, move on from. So once you have the property under contract, you start your due diligence, let's pick it up there. What's the next step? Yeah. So Really on the due diligence side, uh, you know, we've got a, a strong sense, especially with our, you know, our background in construction and our partners from a fee builder or rather a fee developer standpoint, right? We're partnering with developers that have been doing, uh, built, building these townhomes for 20, 30 years, right? So, you know, we're confident in our ability to work with and perform based on their ability to uh, put up, continue to put up structures as they have the past 20 to 30 years. And so we've got a strong sense of a cost of construction. So it's, you know, the biggest part once we get under contract is just that is, is two parts, a validating cost of construction, uh, right? On the initial underwriting, we're assuming, you know, what we've seen maybe with some cost inflation added to it. And then, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's been a fun and wild ride this last yeah. year. 
and it continues to be lumber uh, continues has been going back up <laughs> which has been painful yep. but um yeah the next piece the next phase is of the feasibility is, is generally speaking our capital raising side where you know we solicit or we go to our we work with our limited partners uh, limited investors on raising the necessary equity to uh, uh, close on the property okay great and that material uh, cost inflation has been obviously really big and there's also there's the, the the cost inflation also the availability and then of course labor and all of these other things that factor into it how do you deal with all of that variability in terms of you know in a nuts and bolts sense i mean how do you kind of make sense of it because that has definitely been a stumbling block for many developers out there yeah and and it continues to be especially on so i'll i'll take those 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 three those three verticals right cost of materials availability of materials and cost of labor so on the on the first side the cost of materials you know i saw an interesting uh, um, i had an interesting presentation this last week where a developer who's putting up 3000 units across the across the country a year he did an incredibly thorough analysis showing that a lot of the cost of material is actually a cost it's a it's a function of cost of shipping so uh, as opposed to the true, tr- true actual cost of the material, the cost of shipping is the one that's driving the shear increase. And so, you know, I don't see that getting uh, uh, much better over the, the very, very short term. I do absolutely see it getting better by the end of this year, uh, you know, as, as uh, state and uh, country lines become a little bit less restrictive. Uh, I do believe that those prices will come down. Um, however, we do have a you know a, a terrible humanitarian crisis that's happening right now that you know could uh, to some degree and will to some degree impact cost of uh, gasoline, oil, etc. That will, for the short term, I, I hope, um, impact the cost of materials, albeit through the cost of shipping. Uh, delay of materials, I mean, it's it's a real thing, right? We, we our our most recent development. We had window delivery scheduled for six weeks, and we just literally got it yesterday at the thirteenth week. Oh man! So, what? How do we? How do you manage that? Right? It's it's difficult. So there's there's a couple ways that we're considering in the future going forward. In the future, is um, working with a permit set that is identical from uh, one project to another. So taking a permit set where the windows are all the same size, everything is the same size in makeup. It's just on a different lot. That way, we have the option to do bulk buying. So bulk buying is going to give us a couple different options. It's going to allow us to control our own supply chain a little bit better because we can actually bulk buy and hold materials in a warehouse, as well as obviously um, better pricing. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that that's, you know, that's an opportunity that we're going to have over the coming and that we're going to take over the coming uh, 2022, just to, again, give us better control over our own supply chain as well as help reduce costs as you know, costs elsewhere continue to go up. And then on the labor side, uh, labor shortage right now in Seattle, what we've been dealing with is uh, a concrete strike since December. Oh, wow. Absolutely. And th- what does that mean? That means all commercial projects, large commercial projects from a, a concrete standpoint has come to a screeching halt. So on the midsize, what, where we small and midsize where we're operating, we're having we're we're strategically working with owner operators of uh, concrete trucks to be able to service our projects and our needs, which albeit comes at a cost, 
right? It's probably about a 15% increase cost on flat work, which, you know, on a six unit townhome is going to be about maybe $15,000 increase on cost. Not terrible, but absolutely something that, you know, we don't necessarily want to be taking. Um, 15,000 bucks. But, but if you can, if you consider it from a money cost perspective, right? If we couldn't be pouring, last time people were pouring was back in December. And so, you know, as of right now, that's what, two months ago, and there's still no, there's still no um, end in sight. So what, what the concrete strike is, it's, it's a, uh, the concrete workers are unionized here up in Seattle. The large firms are the large concrete producers and deliverers and operators are unionized, which is great. But right now, management and labor are in a dispute. And uh, uh, from uh, the market's perspective, we're, we're suffering. Um, and so we're, we're going, we're working with small owner operators to continue, uh, to continue our projects forward. Once we get this, this, con the concrete strike resolved, what will end up happening is, a, you know, a, a large backlog of getting through those big commercial projects. And so it, we do have a long tail, probably three to six months after whenever that, that period, uh, after that agreement is, is finished. Interesting. So that's, that's, um, that's a good example, or I, I would say maybe a maybe a microcosm. Uh, but in the in the macro, you know, you have other trades that are involved. I would imagine that your costs of various other trades have gone up as well. Is it right. comparable in terms of you know fifteen percent? Is it more or less? No, I, I would say it's I would say it's on par. You know, it, it's probably at, at or around the ten percent increase on a true like an apples to apples uh, labor cost. Right, we I would say a ten percent ten percent cost inflation on uh, on labor costs is absolutely what we're seeing right now. Um, and what do we do with that? Right on on continued projects, we uh, well I'll talk about current and continue in future projects. Future projects we're underwriting at that higher cost. Um, current projects, what are we doing? Uh, uh, well, thankfully we have uh, a couple different ways. We have uh, a couple guaranteed max price, so lump sum lump sum contracts where you know, we went into this knowing uh, full well what the, the the price would be with our, our developer, and uh, you know, unfortunately, it's some you know some some win some lose uh, in in those contracts, and so you know, it's it's going to be at the um, strength of the relationship between the general and the sub to be able to work through those those cost increases. Okay, okay. So <clears throat> to go back to the the timeline of one of these deals, I believe we've gotten up to the point where you, you're raising capital from investors. Once you get the capital in parallel, you know, what are you doing with the, the general contractor? And you know, I would assume there's probably more permitting that needs to happen even after the lot itself is, is all ready to go. So what happens then? Let's sure. keep pushing forward. Yeah, good question. So concurrently with the, the investor side, uh, um, we're also, uh, Getting our master services, our contractor services agreement, all ticked and uh, ticked and tied, and getting all of that negotiated. Uh, you know, a lot. Typically, a lot of that really just boils down to to, to cost. So, uh, you know, terms are t are pretty standard across the board from a development standpoint. You know, net thirty um, from a payment perspective. Uh, you know, how you how we how we work with change orders, costs, etc communication plans, et cetera, um, kind of all standard term uh, terms, but, you know, really comes down to the cost. And so, uh, you know, a lot of what the developer is going to be doing is going out, getting hard bids from their subcontractors, 
which typically, you know, depending on the size and the scope of the project is about a two to three week process. So working with them on that concurrently with the, the contract terms. So that way, ideally within three, at the end of three or at the end of four weeks, we've got our, our capital raised from our investors, our, our contractor services agreement, all finalized, signed off on, and we're working through any kind of title exemptions uh, or any, any complexities outside of that within the purchase and sale agreement. Okay. So at that point, when do we, when do we finally get to, you know, somebody brings out a shovel and sticks that shovel in the ground? How close? Day are two. We? So yeah, no. So good, good question. So day two is, you know, that's how I always phrase it, right? When, when I'm, when we're meeting with developers, when we're meeting with investors is, you know, that's, so that's why uh, right now uh, we're really only hyper-focused on uh, those permit ready entitled projects to where day two, we have mobilized out the excavator and we are digging. Um, and really, really truly that, that, that is the way that it works because we're closing, uh, our, our closing is contingent on seller pulling and issuing those permits, getting them ready, having those meetings with the architects on the front end and getting, um, getting our pre-construction meetings with the city all done prior to closing. Right. There's a, there's a period between feasibility and closing where we do all of that stuff, right. Where it's, okay, our money has gone hard. Um, our money has gone hard and we know that we're going forward with this project, barring any kind of catastrophic, you know, catastrophic event. So we're holding those pre-construction meetings. We are, we're getting the permits pulled. We're getting everything done. So that way, again, the goal is day two to have excavators out there digging and moving earth. So and, Dave, and, and we do that. So that way, you know, month, we can hit those month 10 and four, between 10 and 14 timelines. Okay. So day one being the day that you actually close on the property right. and day two, right. Moving forward. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. So now we're on day two. I, I'm hopefully we're not skipping or skipping too many steps around here. Day two properties getting built. You know, what are you, you, are you in management mode? How, you know, assume there's probably some level of communication with your investors. What are you doing until you get, you know, until the property's done, right? What are, sure. you, what are you up to? Yeah, absolutely. Good question. So we, we operate with the developer in the sense that we're working with them, understanding what are their obstacles, what's going on with them. And, and so that way we're able to effectively communicate back to our investors, construction timelines, as well as any kind of market updates. How is, you know, how is, how does the market continue to appreciate or is it softening? What's going on? And keeping all of that in in the framework of, you know, the initial original investment, the original underwriting. So that way, again, you know, on these townhome developments, we're not paying out cash distributions during the life of the project because there's there's no cash from operations. So the the way that it's teed up is, you know, hey, you, you've invested a hundred thousand dollars, assuming it's a four million dollar exit. Now, all of a sudden, it's a $4.5 million exit. And how does that impact your initial investment from an underwriting perspective, right? Obviously, there may be cost increases. There may be longer hold times. There may be all of this. And so it's, it's really showing and illustrating and communicating back to the investors as how, is, how are all of these changes impacting? Because you know all of our investors right now are full-time workers, uh, full-time uh, day job. We've got doctors, lawyers. We've got retirees where you know they don't necessarily want to. I'll actually say they don't actually want to, you know, be managing and working with these con with the contractors and the lenders and all that kind of stuff. They they want a, a quick, simple, succinct communication that says, 
how their investment is performing. And that's what we give them. And not only is it the communication, but it's also holding the developers accountable for timelines, for budget, working with them, working with any kind of municipality and or utility company, which by the way, I've learned that the most difficult part of construction is not the construction. It's working with the municipalities and the utility companies <laughs> because it's, it's out of our control, right? With subcontractors, that's within our control. With our crews and our builders, it's within our control. But when you bring in municipalities like the city or the county or Department of Transportation or the utility companies, those are all external. All we're doing is making their jobs more difficult. And so they see, they see it as in, uh, um, an adversarial relationship. And so our job as the management company is to, uh, uh, is to mend those relationships, is to make it an, an easy process between our developer ourselves, our investors, and those municipalities and the utility companies. Nice. Nice. Yeah. That can really uh, throw a wrench into the works. I can imagine if a yeah. municipality decides they want to, you know, put a pause on things. So, okay. Pushing forward, the, the property is getting built. You're, you're coming close to, you know, it's going to be completed. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what timeline that is to, to complete the property in this case, but where do you go from there? I mean, there's the, Build to rent models fairly popular right now. Yep. There's obviously the MLS is insane. So you're probably not going to lose by selling it to a retail buyer. What are you looking at in terms of exit strategy at the end? Good, good question. So we we always phrase it as we've got those those exact two. And typically the third of uh, sell some, uh, hold some at a low leverage uh, perm debt, permanent debt position. But the, the two primary strategies are the build to rent and the build to sell. And the, the chief, I would say, uh, determine of, of what strategy, what lever we pull is based on the temperature of the market at the time. Are things selling for, and this is a real number, half million dollars over asking? <laughs> or <laughs> I think Bellevue may hold one of the records of over a million dollars over asking. That's insane. It is insane. So it, it depends on the temperature of the market. Absolutely, right? Or, or can we can we can we perform uh, outperform our our underwriting to a uh, ten to fifteen to twenty percent degree, or are we holding true to underwriting based on current market conditions? And so a lot of our investors, you know, are appreciative of our approach in that aspect because you know at the beginning of the project, especially in a market that continues to appreciate like like Seattle has and like the rest of the nation has, uh, you know, you, you can certainly appreciate the amount of, of gain that you get above the original underwriting in, in today's market. And so, you know, really it goes back to uh, what are things selling for at the time? Uh, or is there a bidding war? Are there um, above offer, um, above asking offers, et cetera? Okay. Okay. Awesome. Well, you know, it seems like this market has been very good to real estate developers with all, even with all of the problems, you still have a very strong market on the back end to sell into, which is really what you need. Now, one question I want to ask here before we move on to the three questions I ask every guest at the end of the show, it's really about going into these deals adequately capitalized. I would, you know, imagine there's a bit of a temptation to kind of manage the amount of money that you raise because, hey, the more money that we raise, ultimately we get less of a return on that money. If we have too right. much sitting in the bank, then that impacts our returns on a percentage standpoint. So how do you manage that mentally? You want to have enough money. You never want to have yep. to go back and say, hey, I need more money. Typical. Right. How do you, how do you balance that? Sure. 
Good question. So yeah, first off, proud to say that we have not yet had a capital call. Good. That's fantastic. And nor do we plan on it based on, again, conservative underwriting. You know, uh, it's it's a tough call, right? W- what's the balance? Do you want, well, first off, I'll say we don't want a capital call. So we'll, we will always ra- over-raise. Um, now, what does that do? Obviously, to your point, our cash, our cash on cash, our, our IRR typically would be skewed downwards. But you know, in a market where costs continue to go up, we're going to continue to do that, right? And so typically we'll raise 10 to 15%, which, you know, would, would calculate out to be 100 to maybe $150,000 more for within the operating account in order to uh, cover any kind of costs like that. Luckily, we haven't had any of those. So it's operating account just sits, um, sits full. But again, we've got that opportunity. We've got that option to uh, Pull that, pull that lever if if we need be and cover the costs to continue on the construction. Yeah, you'd really rather have that money sitting there waiting, doing nothing than have to go get it in a yeah. in a hurry. 100%. Yeah. Wow. Well, awesome. Really appreciate you walking us through that strategy here today. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Carl, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yes. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? That's a tough one. I... I, uh... I would put it as, and I hope this isn't too cliche or existential, but I would put it in in the relationships. Investing in relationships and investing in time in others is absolutely something that early in my career I took advantage of and didn't did not do as well as I uh, intend to do now and, and continue to do. You know, really, what I like to do is sit down, uh, understand somebody. Um, what makes them passionate? What are their life goals? And how can I help if I can help, um, help helping them to achieve that goal? Maybe it's maybe it's making a connection to somebody that can. Um, but it's it's I'm going to do what I can uh, to help them reach that goal. Whether it's climbing a mountain, I can help with that. Or if it's creating wealth through passive investing, we can help with that. You know, again, my my intent and what I like about investing in relationships and investing others is the joy that it brings in seeing others reach their goals. Again, whether it's monetary, um, existential, or whether it's something else that really, you know, that I can see that they're passionate about, that their gears are turning and that I can help with. Nice. Love that. Well, we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? I would put it not within uh, a real estate frame of mind. I would put it actually... Uh, financially speaking, uh, I would put it in uh, the sense that you know when I again when I when I started on uh, investing a couple decades ago is investing in things that I did not understand, so uh, ETFs, mutual funds, where I didn't do a thorough analysis, a thorough portfolio analysis, and looked at who are the different companies that make up that 
that, that mutual fund? Who are the owners and who, are, who is the leadership of those teams uh, that compromise those companies? Right. I looked at historical trends and assumed that future performance would be based on historical data. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I, I ended up doing, you know, not bad, but looking at it, it was far riskier than anything I've done from an investment perspective. Because again, I didn't know anybody who was making me that money. I, all I did was assume that past, past performance would, be, would continue. And so, you know, the, the takeaway there is understand who you're investing in, understand who you're investing with, do your due diligence and understand how, again, what the, what the business plan is, what the communication plan is and how your money is going to stay safe and grow. Love it. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? So I would, I would break that up into two, if you don't mind. Go ahead. Um, from a business perspective, what I've learned running, running this business is the most important is building a roadmap of priorities and influencing others, my employees, my partner, our, 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 our stakeholders within the industry and getting those priorities and focusing our attention on those priorities, right? And so it's, again, building out that roadmap, taking down those priorities while also being nimble enough to um, be flexible and take on different priorities should they come up. Nice. And from an investing standpoint, uh, I, I think the most important part of investing is, I go back to due diligence, is know what you're getting into, right? either from an investment stand, standpoint or from a sponsored a general partner standpoint, do your due diligence, know what you're getting into. And uh, again, just do it, do as much homework as possible. You know, sure. You, you may miss an opportunity, whether, you know, it's an investment, whether it's a, a general partner, whatever it happens to be, but you, you can't do enough due diligence. You know, what I like about operating in the commercial multifamily space is sellers t- sellers and brokers tend to know that we need to be able to do t- due diligence right so we're able to get a sizable feasibility inspection periods without having to negotiate um too much now in the single family space you have to like it's, it's incredibly competitive in the sing- in the single family space where you're having to you're waiving every single contingency your your money is going hard you're 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 putting your first bo- you're putting your firstborn down <laughs> as hard automatically from day one and you're closing in 14 days cash. And if you don't, well, there goes your, your firstborn and and your, your earnest money. But, you know, again, what I like about the commercial multifamily spaces, we're able to perform that due diligence. And, and if for some reason, one reason or another, we're not, we're, we're not giving that option, then it's not the right buy for us because we're not going into an investment opportunity that we don't get to perform, you know, our full, our full list of, you know, is the title right? Is the site right? Are the permits and plans right? Or are construction plans and costs right, et cetera. So I'd say by far due diligence is, is certainly the most important part of investing that I found. Love it. Well, Carl, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for all the lessons. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, they want to, you know, talk with you more about any of this, these topics we've discussed today, where can they track you down? Sure. So two spots, auroraisinvestmentgroup.com. That's auroraisinvestmentgroup.com. Or you can reach out to me directly, Carl at auroraisinvestmentgroup.com. We are on LinkedIn as well as Instagram and Facebook. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. 
I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye. Thank you.